EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash insideems. Well, it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm Chris Sabalero, and with me always, sitting in the right-hand seat, is my good friend Kelly Grayson. Kelly Grayson, you're on the world tour again, aren't you? Yeah, man. Just coming back from the Georgia Association of EMS Educators Conference in Savannah. Great bunch of people, great conference, great venue. Uh, got, to, got to give a few talks and hang out with my tribe. And we partied last night till the cops shut us down. <laughs> till the cops shut you down? Until the cops shut us down. Actually, I think it was a, a certain Savannah police officer drunk with his own authority. Um, uh, they have a noise ordinance. They have a noise uh, music ordinance in Savannah. Um, and we had worked out a deal with the hotel where we had a, a musician uh, come play. And uh, the hotel basically said, as long as we don't get any noise complaints, you can stay out on the deck all night long. Uh, but when we get the first noise complaint after the noise ordinance, uh, you have to shut it down. Uh, so that's what we did. So, um, uh, and then a police officer came up and said that we've been getting 911 calls and complaints, which, you know, is BS because the only people we could hear is were the guests of the hotel and they're going to call the, the front desk first <laughs> before they start calling 911. Um, so anyway, we shut it down. It was a good time and, uh, look forward to coming back next year. You were just a, you were just a bad boy. You were just a troublemaker. That's right, man. If uh, I was well, them, yeah, I wouldn't the let you. I wouldn't let down, you. The man keeping us down. I wouldn't let. If I was Georgia, I wouldn't let you back in a state. <laughs> so you know, Kelly, I think you know. I say this all the time, but man, we've got a great thing to chat about today. And uh, you know, first, I guess just a little precursor. You know, we we've spent a lot of time you and I talking about you know heroin, heroin addiction, treatment to heroin, this Narcan uh, topic where we're now giving out free Narcan. And our good friend, uh, Ray Kemp, who is our resident expert in everything uh, video, uh, even um, you know the, the First Amendment when it comes to uh, photography, and maybe we should even hit him with this NFL thing. No, we're not going to do that. But uh, Ray is uh, really kind of embarking on a really great project. And before we talk about it, let's go ahead and bring him in here, our good friend Ray Kemp. Ray, uh, thanks for joining us on Inside EMS. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And, Welcome uh, to the show, Ray. Thank you. How was that introduction? Was it just like you wrote it? I mean, did I get it the way you wanted yeah, it? That's good. You left off about three of my degrees, but that's okay. No, that's okay. I mean, you know, I'm sure you're. I'm sure you're pretty hot, <laughs> no. so we don't need to talk about your body temperature. So, um, so Ray, you know, we, we were kind of talking about, and I know you've been working on this project for some time, but I want to make sure that I get it right. So my first question is going to be, you are developing a video that shows the human side of addiction and really from the standpoint, Ray, of the uh, abuser's side to addiction. 
And, you know, I guess maybe you just give us a little bit about the overview, but I guess the question I want to follow on to you with that is, what was the catalyst for developing this video? Yeah, the, 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 the production, it's a mini documentary, so it's going to be about 20, 25 minutes long, and it's, it's particularly designed for the first responder, but the, and, and it, it challenges the stigma. We, we wanted to go right out after the stigma that's been increasing out there between many first responders when it comes to dealing with, with heroin addiction, incidents that they're involved with, presenting Narcan, giving Narcan, and what have you. The, so, but I really got involved with it only about three years ago. I, my youngest daughter had uh, become a heroin addict. And, wow. Um, I had watched her for three days go through withdrawal. Uh, while we were trying to get her into a treatment program, which, like many places, there's a waiting list, one of the problems we have today. So I was not able to get her into immediate treatment, and on the fourth day, she couldn't handle it anymore, and she bolted from the house and went back on heroin. And from that point forward, it was, it's been a three-year ordeal for me working with her, and then I've had challenges where I, I had to uh, become a guardian for my uh, granddaughter, her daughter, uh, for a few years until just recently. And um, that opened my eyes up because prior to all this, or during this time, I shouldn't say prior to all this, I had, uh, as you know, I, I film on, on calls. I, we, we do a lot of educational production involving paramedics, police, and fire. And, uh, and even my own experiences way, way, way back when I was involved in EMS, although we did not have the, the so-called heroin epidemic back then, I have filmed dozens of overdoses and never gave them a, a, a thought. I just thought that these were just people who were down on their luck, losers. I don't know what else to call them. And I'd film them, and I, and I kind of tended to be a little callous about it myself. I didn't do anything directly, but I didn't really have a uh, – I didn't really feel for them either, quite frankly. Not until I started experiences with my own daughter, and that's that was my wake-up call. I, I, want, I needed to become yeah. a student on this and learn more about it, and that's – where things fell to today, where we decided to launch this this production called Not My Addiction, and it is specifically steered to help inform the viewers straight from the former addicts and addicts' words, own words, what goes on during certain times of their addiction. What why why what happens after they they're given Narcan? Why they do what they do when they're given Narcan after they're given Narcan and they, and they come around. Um, why they even do the drug, why, why all these things happen to give the, the, the viewer a much more uh, closer look at their, at their disease and a better understanding, hopefully. You know, I can't wait to, uh, to see this mini-documentary because I was, Nancy and I were talking uh, just a few minutes ago in the car how we were listening to an EMS instructor uh, that I've known for many, many years and taught with and, and, and respected to some degree, uh, having a casual conversation about heroin users and, and, and uh, layperson use of naloxone, that sort of thing. And her opinion was that we should just let nature take, take its course and let those losers just die. And I was, I was kind of flabbergasted and, and honestly a bit of a coward because we didn't address it. I didn't call her out on it. Um, but that seems to be a, a fairly common sentiment in EMS. And, and you yourself said, you know, that you were kind of callous and in, indifferent to it until it hit home. Um, I, I can't wait to see something where 
uh, we as first responders see someone, a human being, not some scale, not some loser, not some dirtbag, a human being uh, in the grips of an addiction that they didn't choose. Um, and what really struck you, Ray, what, what about her addiction really struck you uh, as, as being, um, you know, for, for want of a better word, uh, a test or, or, or a burden um, that, you know, what humanizes it about your granddaughter having uh, uh, the heroin addiction for you? Yeah, it's, it's actually my daughter that has the... Your daughter, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's all right. Um, it was, again, watching the withdrawals for three days. That was an eye-opener. This is something normally in the field you never see. You do not yeah. watch somebody for several days going through those. We hear about withdrawals. We see yeah. withdrawals and what they put on television and what have you, so we have an idea. But the biggest problem with heroin, opiate, however we want to label it, addiction, in, in the area of first responders particularly, is there's an overwhelming misunderstanding about the disease. We, there's, there's, yeah. a, there's a huge valley of ignorance out there. Understand, and they think they know about it. Particularly when they go on more calls, they think they're all they become experts on the disease, and they are nowhere near it, nowhere yeah. near understanding. So it wasn't until I actually watched it, and I watched her pain, that is what gripped me the most. I watched the agony and pain she was going through, and all the stuff she told me prior to that, why she did what she did, and what happens, and all now suddenly made sense. And I started to look into this a little bit deeper and deeper. And when we interviewed uh, our, our, our uh, subjects for the production, uh, f- three of them are young girls in their uh, early to mid-20s. And if you look at these girls, you would never know that they had a problem when you see them on camera. It's just, it's just Their stories are amazing. And, but what really struck me was the similarity of, all, uh, of each one of their experiences. When they talked about... Uh, Narcan and what happened to them when they came out of it, they were all identical on the same course. Their report about how it impacted them, how they started to go into withdrawal, dope sickness started to set in, and what have you, and that they had to go and get right back on heroin. These are things that many people, first responders, I'll go back in that direction there, don't understand. And a lot of them are left scratching their heads or trying to figure out, gee, I just saved this guy's life. Why isn't he kissing my ring or hugging me saying thank you, thank you, thank you? They don't understand this. They don't understand what's happening at that very moment when you revive somebody using Narcan. There's a lot of confusion that's going on and what have you, but more importantly, that they need to understand, dope sickness is starting to start setting in. They're, they're in early stages of withdrawal, and that's what our first responders need to get a better understanding of. So what better way I felt to, to convey that understanding than hearing it direct from the people who have used and their experiences, and why they did, and why they do the things that they do. And I think hopefully their stories will help build empathy to them. I'm hoping empathy will build up from the viewer to them. That that comes across as being human. And we had a little two-minute clip that we put out there for a little while just to test it. And the response on this, that little two-minute segment that we put out, was overwhelming just in two minutes. So I, I think we're on the right on the right course for this. Yeah, Ray, and I and I actually had the opportunity to check out that two minute video, and I think it was closer to three, if I'm not mistaken. But it was mm-hmm. in just that short amount of time, you know, it was a very, very powerful uh, um, testimony of what 
these folks were going through. And I, you know, I, I want to go ahead and now hit you with the other side of this. And, you know, this was very personal to you. As you mentioned, you went through it with your daughter. Uh, you know, you and I live very close. So uh, we had the opportunity to kind of co- uh, commiserate. And, 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 you know, I was, I was kind of, you know, listening and there with you as you were kind of going through these things and I understand your passion for this. So I want to go ahead now and take this this other side. It seems that EMS providers have have taken umbrage to now having to treat heroin addiction using Narcan and, and waking them up, and you know. But we don't take umbrage to any other call. We don't take umbrage to the heart attack victim who's been eating, you know, has, who's been eating pork and who's been drinking uh-huh. and smoking. And but it seems for some reason that this stigma has really caused uh, uh, us in EMS, and i got to tell you, I mean, you and I have talked uh, very, very uh, candidly. I was this way when I was younger. You were this way when you were as a paramedic. I think, Kelly, you even had mentioned it, that you had uh, lack of compassion as well. Is this just a maturity issue? One, I I think that's the question. But in this two-minute video, one of the things that struck me, Ray, was uh, the individual who was talking on camera said, you know, uh, I don't. I don't get paid to give Narcan to somebody. Well, you don't get paid to give epinephrine to somebody. You don't get paid to give oxygen to somebody. In theory, we do. So, as we think about this stigma that that EMS providers have, I mean, one, why do you think it happens? And two, how do we get around it? Yeah, it's. It's. I think it's a great point because that is what really brought me more to the forefront to do something like this here. Uh, the stigma, I believe, quite frankly, is because we can't relate to it. We, we, if we're talking about somebody who is uh, uh, diabetic or overweight, uh, has heart problems and what have you, or, or uh, slips and falls all the time just because of weak legs due to, their, due, due, due to being obese and what have you. In all those areas, we can relate to that in some form or another. We might be obese ourselves, or we have an uncle who's a diabetic. You see, so there's a relationship. We can we can understand that. But when you deal with the opiate, which is completely different, completely different animal entirely, a lot of people have difficulty trying to draw a relationship and an understanding. And it just seems so natural. Why in the world would you even do this drug? Shame on you. You made a bad choice. And because of your bad choice, spank, 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 we shouldn't give you anything. We shouldn't help you or whatever. However you want to draw the line on this here. And that is really, from my experience and from what I've witnessed, what, what happened. And, I, and I'm going to draw my own experience. That's how I looked at it until I became yeah. educated on it. This is something, it's not going to go away, guys, in, in the next five years. This, this, is, this is a monster that's loose and uh, is far from being tamed. I am convinced that we have to start teaching a better understanding of opiate addiction as part of medical training, EMT and paramedic classes. They have to start understanding this. You're running these calls way 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 too much and the, and what concerns me now and i've seen it already is you get the emt student who's then doing his ride a long time and guess what he's stuck with somebody like that paramedic girl you just talked about there who has a yeah, stigma. Some crusty burnout. you got it well and they're going to pass that stigma right on to him why wouldn't he believe that we certainly didn't address it in emt school at all so this is a problem i think that needs to be looked at even deeper in that sense there so that's what our hope is with this production here is to really, this, this is a great production I think could be used in a paramedic class or an EMT class because it really gives you a really clear and upfront, close and personalized look at the disease. We don't use any SMEs in there. We don't have some heroin counselor on there saying, and if this happens, do that. And if that happens, this is why they do this. We have none of that in there. The entire 
format is to educate you through their personal experience uh, and hopefully develop some empathy and to understand that these, these people are also human. It's amazing when they get into their family issues and they start talking about how family came closer together and they start describing things that they do in their life that we all take for granted. You know, we, we have a family that loves us and cares for us. We have a good job and what have you. And when they start talking about that as part of recovery, it's really overwhelming. And it, it's, it's, and it starts to make you realize they're just normal people, but they got caught up in a bad situation. And, uh, uh I think as I said before, all three of these girls got started from, from their boyfriends, quite frankly, they all, that's how they got started into this. And, uh, uh, and led to what they're doing today, and, uh, but although they're, you know, some of them are clean now. With the, our la- last girl that we interviewed, her name is Hannah. Also, um, she's just ninety days clean right now, so she's really in the infancy parts of recovery, and she still talks about the the struggle and the recovery, and uh, and and she's in nursing school to top this off. So you've, when we met her, I couldn't believe she was she was an addict. I mean, she just and not that they're supposed to look a certain way or talk a certain way, but it's you know. Sometimes I catch myself still doing a double take, like, wow. I mean, I would have never known. Would have never known. Right. I, I want to ask you a, a bit of a prying question, I, 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 and I don't mean to, to be rude. Uh, how did your – there's a point to it, uh, so I'll have a follow-up, Chris. <laughs> okay. How did your daughter's addiction get started? What led to it? How'd same thing. Those? Same thing. Boyfriend, same exact way. Uh, yep. Using, using recreationally and, and – Exactly. Sort of Exactly. Okay. I started, uh, two of the girls start, started using ecstasy with a boyfriend. It started with that, and then it moved up to heroin. Uh, the last girl that we interviewed, um, again, she wanted to impress the boyfriend. She, this was something that was really important to her. She wanted him, she wanted to make sure he liked her. So she was willing yeah. to practically do anything for him. Um, and so she had started uh, snorting heroin at first. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, they'll switch to the needle later on because it's cheaper that way. You'll get a quicker euphoria, so you get more bang yeah. for your buck. So they go from snorting to the needle later on. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, she, the third time, that was it. She was hooked in. And then the, the first girl, yeah. Candace, it was amazing, her story, because she had she had talked about uh, on a family vacation when she realized she was addicted. This is, this is after probably her third time trying it. And she had to come up with some BS story to leave the family vacation in Florida. To go back home so she could get back on heroin. It's, it's terrible yeah. how, how well, quickly the monster will grab onto you. Yeah, and you know one of the the things I find really ironic about healthcare providers' lack of empathy, uh, particularly in EMS. You know, I, one of my students spouted off uh, uh, some uninformed tripe the other day about uh, why is taxpayer dollars going to to providing counties with uh, with a free out. One of the things that that we fail to recognize is that we, the healthcare profession, is played a large part in starting this epidemic. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, mm-hmm. it, it's been the perfect storm. We, we've had this this focus for years uh, on on adequate pain management and uh, in the emergency department and, and making it the fifth vital sign and part of our uh, and part of uh, emergency physicians. Um, uh, press gaining scores and that sort of thing, and 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 how these these doctors are rated. Um, yet at the same time, um, we've got the DEA cracking down on pain management clinics, and these guys get no follow up. So they go to the emergency department, they get a week's worth of of uh, potent narcotics for their pain. Um, yet their healthcare situation or their insurance deductibles or whatever. Uh, or lack of access to to uh, primary care, they don't get the follow up that they need. 
to manage the source of the pain in the first place. And by the time they get off of their prescription narcotics, they're hooked and they're still in pain. You know, yeah. and and that's you, you see that story commonly that that someone got got hooked on prescription narcotics for a legitimate complaint, uh, never was able to get the original problem fixed or managed appropriately, uh, and now they're orphaned out there. And and the only way that they can manage their pain uh, is with illicit drugs. And and boom, hooked. Uh, and I look at that sort of thing, and I think there, but for the grace of God, go I. I've never been someone to to take pills. Nancy has to, to force me to take an ibuprofen when I'm aching. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I have my own addictions, food, you know, so yeah. I can kind of see uh, how those sorts of things can, can sneak up on you. And uh, God forbid, if, if I were to have a, a heart attack and some some jerk comes up there and goes, well, you know, I'm, I've, I've seen you eat before, dude. Uh, you had this coming. No, I, I I agree. And what's interesting is with one of the interviews, they had talked about even though they had started on heroin, they would also then be able to go and see a doctor. They go to a urgent care, or whatever, and and uh, come up with some kind of an ailment that they needed some pain medication for, and they would get it. They would get it. So even though they didn't start on it, in some cases they were able to continue their habit through going to places and, and literally faking out a, a pain of some sort and getting medication through there. So uh, uh, it, it's a problem in that in that area there as well as far as continuing it. But most of the time they would just try to, to stay on the heroin or, or some other forms. I know when we had testing and stuff like that done in the back, it, it was uh, with, with my, my daughter, there was a plethora of different opiates that were coming back on it. So it wasn't just heroin. She was getting other things as well, whatever they can get at the time. And again, as I pointed out, it's secondary. Everything is secondary to them. So it's it, 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 to the, the use of opiates at that stage of the game, when they're, when they're addicted at that stage of the game, is their normal. That is their normal routine. Yeah. They, and they will do anything because they know to not stay on the normal brings on pain, brings on sickness, terrible sickness, which they will go to all ends of the earth. To avoid that, to avoid that. Yeah, Ray, I want to go ahead and I want to touch on that because that was really leading into my next question. Because we had uh, conversations, you and I, about why they continue to use. I mean, why isn't it just as easy for them? You know, they started. I mean, uh, you know, they made the choice to put the needle in their arm the first time. As you made mention, the second time or by the third time they're addicted, they're hooked on it. So why don't they just stop? I mean, what's the problem if if you started so quickly? Why don't you just stop using it? It, it can't be that hard. Well, it is. It's, it, it is uh, probably the hardest thing to get off of in, in terms of any kind of chemical dependency, and that's one of the reasons why I dubbed it a monster. It is. You, you, I mean, unless you're around it and you have family that's involved with it and experience what I've experienced, it's, it's even even through our video production, it's difficult to comprehend just how bad this monster gets a hold of them and won't let go. And I think once you accept that, accept the fact that they are trapped, they are in a area where they're just trapped with their addiction and it's going to be extremely difficult to get out, I think it's going to make it easier for first responders uh, to treat them as a patient and look at them as a patient and understand this person's going through a terrible ordeal. Yes, they made a bad decision. I made a bad decision too. I got a few ex-wives to prove it. But it's, um, it, it, I mean, we all make bad decisions now, uh, but we're, we're dealing with life and death here at this point. We're, we're dealing with life and death. And that really bothers me when I, when I see 
comments on Facebook and what have you, particularly if it's a Narcan distribution uh, post of some sort. You know, new new places going to give out Narcan for free. Oh my God, you ought to see the 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 responses that come up on there. These all these people wish them dead. They think they should just die. And I think when you see our video production, our documentary, and you start to get into the lives of these individuals. It's going to be remarkable. I, I think at the end, I, I think somebody's going to be left saying, oh, my God, I, ho I hope this person's doing good, doing well, because you're going to like them. You're, you're, going to, you're going to understand what you see on there because you're seeing a side that you do not see in the field at all. The only t part you see in the field typically is that encounter you have on an overdose scene, and that's typically pretty brief. They're either dead or you revive them with Narcan, and you got a little dialogue in the back of the ambulance, and you take them to the hospital, and that's it. Out of sight, out of mind, you're on your way. And you do not have an opportunity to really truly understand the pain of what they're enduring and just how horrible, horrible, horrible it grabs onto them and will not let go. It is, uh, this is alarming. I, I can't raise the flag any higher, the alarm bells any, any louder. This is alarming, and much more needs to be done about it. But it starts with our first responders because all of the people that we've interviewed have indicated in, in the interviews, and you'll see this, that they all reached a low part of their life, particularly had no friends, no family around them. And they all felt strongly that had somebody maybe reached out at a certain time, that may have been enough to get them to start turning around. So it's possible, it's possible on these calls that with better understanding of your patient, you may be in a position to reach out and, and have a better understanding and maybe help guide them a little bit that maybe you're just you're just the the hand that they needed to reach out to them. It won't happen all the time. I know that. We all know that. But that one time may be what they needed. And they all expressed that in, in the in the uh, in the interviews. I, I thought it was quite remarkable. Yeah. Ray, I, I want to ask you a question about how has this shifted your thinking about, say, the war on drugs? I, I know that my experiences in the last 10 to 15 years have really changed my thinking politically and, and, and uh, examine my morals and ethics about other people. Uh, there was a time when, you know, I was fully in favor of the war on drugs and gosh darn all those broken people, uh, we should make it totally illegal and, and, and do whatever, spend whatever we have to spend to keep them from coming in our country and lock those suckers up and throw away the key. Now that it's hit you home and hit you personally and you've seen the personal suffering, do you, do you have any, any newer thoughts, or, or has it changed your mind on how we're approaching the drug problem in the United States? No, absolutely, I, 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 on several areas here. Um, first and foremost, we, we, are, we need to, and I don't care if it's government-run centers, we need, to do, we need to have centers set up in every state, every community, whatever you want to call it, uh, however you want to build it, to where if somebody needs to walk in and be admitted to start treatment immediately, they have that ability to do it. And we do not have that right now. A lot of these areas are waiting lists. Sometimes the waiting list is weeks. In some cases, it's even months, depending on where, what state, city, and all that. There. Or else, we're just going to be dealing with more deaths, guys. It's, that's the way it is. Yeah. There's not enough out there. So if we're going to pump money into it, and they talked about doing it, then let's, let's hit it right up on the front side. There should be a way that somebody can just call up and say, I need to come in, and here I go. The one girl, the only reason that she got off of it, she went to prison. She had to be locked away. And went to prison for a couple of years, and that's what got her clean. And uh, so that's and that's that's, a, that's an expensive addiction recovery program right there. Well, it's not uncommon though with a lot of them because in most cases, all of the people that we've interviewed all had criminal activity of some sort. So, uh, so you would 
you would say that now you you think we get a lot more bang for the buck through uh, counseling and addiction recovery programs and uh, and that sort of thing than we do from interdiction and criminalization. Well, that's a fine line. I'm going to have to walk here just a little bit. Now I'll be I'm right. I'm not trying front. to put you in a spot. But no, no, no. That, because but, but a lot of people a lot of people here. feel we shouldn't criminalize the addiction. No, you shouldn't. I don't, I'm, no. But now, but here's what gets them in trouble. It's not the addiction that they're being charged with because it's really not against the law to be addicted all right but most of them will have theft is the biggest thing grand theft is the biggest thing they they will remember i said it's secondary so if they don't have the money to go and buy today they will go and get the money they will steal from your family they will steal from you they will walk into a store and fill a a a hardware store and fill a cart full of Romex wiring that's made out of copper and go running out of the store and they don't care if you're chasing them at the same time. They will do whatever they have to to, to tame that monster, to keep that monster uh, from from uh, from going berserk on them and getting into the dope sick and getting and getting uh, uh, well, you know pain and all that as a result of the withdrawal. So it's all secondary. So so in some cases, like in Hannah's case that we interviewed, the only way she was able to get clean. And the family, her family, actually signed the papers because she had forged checks from her dad um, to put her in prison as a means to get her clean. And it worked. It got her out of the area. It got her out of circulation. She went into prison. She spent two years there and got clean in prison. So I'm not, I'm not saying that's such a bad thing. That's not such a bad thing in some cases there, particularly now since we do not have institutions in many areas most areas, actually, where you can just walk right in and get treatment immediately. And, and, and I mean inpatient treatment, not come in and come back tomorrow. No, they got to get yeah. out of the area. they got to get away from the people that they've been getting this from. They've got to be monitored on a daily basis. That's, that's the biggest aspect right there. Secondly, we have to improve the education. I did some checking with some students and all that. We're not teaching this in school right now. They have the D.A.R.E. programs that you take back in middle school, okay, they still have those going on, the D.A.R.E. programs, the the, the uh, middle school. Remember I said all three of these girls got involved with it through their boyfriends? This is after they got out of high school. We have to now have, there has to be programs specifically towards heroin addiction and keeping this awareness level up front and close, particularly when they're getting ready to get out of school and what have you. So we have to improve the education. That's not out there. So Ray, as we get Good. up there in time, I mean, this is something that we can spend another 30 minutes talking about. But one of the things, I guess, is uh, this is you're going to have a uh, soft debut October 3rd in North Carolina. When can you know the masses kind of see the uh, efforts that you've put forth here and uh, kind of get an understanding of uh, you know the labor of love that went into this project? I'm going to say right now what we're going to be doing in North Carolina. And incidentally, just just since you mentioned North Carolina, they really came to me because apparently there was a big old debate that came up on Facebook, and I believe Kelly, you were involved with it. <laughs> Your name came out. Let me put it that way. And somebody had mentioned this video production. So North Carolina. The folks that run the EM Today conference there in North Carolina contacted me and asked me to come out uh, to present this production and to be on hand for a question and answer. So I'm very grateful to do that. So we're going to make that our sneak preview. That's kind of an early release of the production. It won't be completely all refined and wrapped up because we actually have another interview we want to do. We actually have a uh, an individual right now who is uh, currently uh, an, an uh, addicted and but is not in any kind of rehabilitation whatsoever and he has agreed to go on camera we wanted to kind of get an even more current viewpoint on the whole disease as opposed to the other people we placed in there so the my, my hope is is to have this finalized for a national release 
sometime by the end of October, right in there, first part of November is what we're, what we're going for. And this is, I just wow. want to point this out too, Chris, uh, uh, this is funded completely by me. This is a personal project. I'm not working for anybody to do this. I have uh, put all my own personal money into this production so far. Um, we may look at a sponsor later on to kind of help with some of the funding going forward and other areas with it, but I've, that's not really a, a priority for me right now. This has been so personal and so important um, that uh, I've made it a personal project for myself to get this message out there, but there's nothing else like that uh, out there. I'm, I'm kind of, I guess I'm proud to say that because I think we found a, a recipe that I think is going to help uh, first responders and non-first responders for that matter. These, these could be people in decision-making situations, aldermen, councilmen, things like that, that would benefit from this as well. You know, that I can't wait for it to come out, and I think it's something that my students and my peers and colleagues uh, all need to see uh, and digest and perhaps shift their, their way of thinking if they... Uh, if they think that these these people are beneath them and, and un, uh, unworthy of, of our, our help. Um, but, hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Uh, so email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself, co-host Chris Cibolero and our resident video expert, documentary filmmaker guru, Ray Kemp, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.